Hey Pacers fans, this is Miles Turner, and you're listening to Pacers Sound. And we welcome you in here on a Thursday to the Sideline Guys podcast. Jeremiah Johnson is out in Milwaukee. I'm in Bankers Live Fieldhouse, the Women's Big Ten Tournament going on a few walls behind me. Pacers and Bucks will take place tomorrow. Jeremiah, we do this podcast once a week, and I think, uh, you know, to, uh, to prove that, like you put on Twitter, we are not front runners. We know the last couple games have not been the best. We know we typically, um, you know, have a, a slightly positive Pacers stance as we are employed here by the team and, you know, are invested in the team doing well. That said, I think it's important, you know, to talk about the last couple of games. Two games in just 82 is a very, very small piece of the pie, but I know frustrating, and you've been there with the team. Your duties have you on site in Dallas and Atlanta. Um, The Dallas game didn't totally surprise me in that I think Dallas is better than their record. I think at home they play better. They've been playing better as of late. I kind of expected the Pacers to then rebound pretty nicely against Atlanta. And while they made a nice run there in the fourth quarter, that obviously didn't happen. So you uh, are on site. You're at those games. I'm curious your perspective on the last two. I'll go back to last week's podcast. And we looked at these three games coming up after the All-Star break. And it was dangerous to play three games against teams that are in that tanking mode or, you know, all of the discussion around the NBA and all of the media circles about teams that are more focused on the lottery than they are the playoffs or even trying to win games right now. And when you play three straight games against those kind of teams and basically every fan from the pacer diehard to the nine-year-old in my house thinks, oh, those are three easy wins. And I try to tell everybody that, you know, there's no such thing as as an easy win. And it goes back to when, you know, I was playing nine-year-old basketball and thinking about, oh, we beat that team by 20 points. It'll be an easy win the next time. So I honestly, if you would have asked me last week at this time what I thought about this three-game stretch, I probably, if I had to pick one prediction, I probably thought, you know, one at home, two on the road. You never really know about road games. Two out of three wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And I think that especially right now, if you the Pacers would have won two of the last three games, I think everything would be fine. It was just that Atlanta game and the way it went down, uh, you know, back to the Dallas game, it was really, and nobody wants to make excuses, and Dallas is obviously one of the worst teams in the Western Conference, but I think there were a number of factors that went into that game. Mark Cuban and the controversy surrounding him and the organization, really a few different controversies, and then some sadness with the former owner passing away, and that was the first game at home for Dallas since any of these things have happened over the last few weeks. And they had the new CEO. They just had a press conference. They announced and uh, had that press conference three hours before the game, and she was sitting next to Mark Cuban, front row. And there was just a little bit of a different vibe inside that building, not from a team that you, you know, not from an 18-win team. And so the Mavericks played pretty well. The Pacers, as Nate McMillan referenced, you know, dominated most of the stat sheet. It was just the three-point shots did not fall. And if the Pacers hit their threes, they win that game, and you're probably not freaking out right now. The Atlanta game is a big concern, and I think that on this day off before a game at Milwaukee and a game at Washington, D.C. against the Wizards, that it does cause everyone to step back and evaluate this team right now and where they are and what they need to do because the Hawks game, I, you know, I was talking with Chris Denary and Quinn Buckner and, you know, my opinion, and Chris, I think, shared it. It was kind of the worst game of the season, the worst performance of the season. And you only lost five by five points, but I don't think Atlanta played extremely well. I thought Dallas played well on Monday. I didn't think Atlanta played well. 
I thought the Pacers waited way too long to really turn it on, and I was listening to the huddles, and I felt like there was just this confidence throughout the entire game that they would eventually figure it out and they would eventually take control of the game. But you cannot just make silly passes and careless mistakes and think eventually you're going to come back. I mean, they're down 23 points, and they still got to within two, but you're fighting uphill the entire game, and it, it makes you be perfect in the fourth quarter. And it makes you know the other team have to be so awful to be able to come from behind that by that many points. So it was one of those games that I think is going to be a little bit eye-opening, and I guess it does take me back to the game at Staples Center against the Lakers. If you look at the Lakers right now, they're playing pretty well, and, and they actually went into Atlanta before the Pacers lost to the Hawks and dominated Atlanta. But that was a game after the fact, after a disappointing loss, but not one that you were maybe surprised about. But the loss to Portland and then to lose that game the next night to the Lakers, I think was a time in January near the midway point of the season where everyone thought, uh, you know, maybe maybe this team isn't as good as everyone thought. And what did they do a couple days later? They went to San Antonio and they got a win. And then they went on a stretch starting with that San Antonio victory with, I believe, 12 out of 15 or something close to that that culminated with the win against Atlanta last Friday. So all I would say is take a deep breath, step back. I think the team knows, the players know, the coaches know that what they saw and what the performance that they had on Monday and Wednesday was not acceptable. Uh, but there's still plenty of time left. And and if they can, you know, you probably went to this road trip, Pat, thinking two and two would be okay. It's still possible. I'm not sure that I'll predict it right now, but I do think they have a chance to win at least one of these next two games. No, I think you're dead on, and that's you know been kind of an interesting part of this team this year is the couple of times that they've made you wonder, okay, maybe they're not quite as good as we thought. They've then, as you alluded to, responded with some resounding wins, winning at San Antonio, recently winning at Boston. So this team has shown that they can go and beat good teams on the road. They're going to have two pretty good teams on the road coming up, but this team has shown that they can win those kind of games. I think the thing that's curious to me when you look at the last two is it's not like one um, specific area really hurt them and kind of was their Achilles heel in both, and it's something they need to work on. You know, if, if you go here forward into game number three against Milwaukee, who's also been struggling, I'm not totally sure what you say necessarily needs to get turned around. Now, the defense is certainly um, part of it, but in game number one against Dallas, the Pacers didn't have many turnover problems, and they rebounded well. Against Atlanta, the two biggest problems were they didn't rebound well, and they turned the ball over way too much. So, I don't know, you're around the team, you get a vibe. I know there's not always practice and media availability, and um, haven't had a ton of chance to talk to the team or the guys, but that's one thing I guess that stood out to me. Look, you're going to have bad stretches of the season, and losing two games, you know, I went back after the Dallas game when there was a lot of negativity on Twitter, and obviously, you know, it's 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 known that I work for the Pacers, but I kind of felt like, look, we're at game 60 when that Dallas game ended, and this was the first game that you could say without a doubt was a bad loss. A lot of those other games were without Victor Oladipo. You know, the Lakers are going to be around 20 or 21 in terms of the NBA standings and rankings. So, yeah, if 8 or 9 or 10 loses a 20-21, it's not a good game, but it's not a definite bad loss. I've really felt like the Dallas game was the first bad loss that the Pacers have had all season. And now, unfortunately, they've had back-to-back -back of those with Victor Oladipo playing and losing to teams that are struggling. 
Um, but I thought it was, you know, and maybe this is a glass three quarters full type of take, but I really felt like it was promising just within itself that it took until game 60 to hit that point. But now that they've come back to back here, I think you do have to say, okay, you know, are there things that need to get turned around? Are there specific areas you want to see improved? And that would be, I guess, my question to you. I'm not totally sure what that is, because at least to me, it seemed like the problems in game number one weren't necessarily the same problems in game number two. Yeah, I think you're accurate because after the Dallas game, it was still the fifth straight game. The Pacers had had at least 50 rebounds and out-rebounded an opponent. And, you know, I think all season that was viewed as one of the things that they had to correct to make maybe a playoff run and to have success against good teams. Maybe the rebounding was not as good against Atlanta, but you you would have to chalk up the turnovers to just a one-game thing. Although I think you have to understand over the last couple of games the importance of Darren Collison and really that Corey Joseph is probably best suited to be a backup point guard, and this isn't a slight against Corey, and, and he's played well in short stints with Toronto and with San Antonio and filling in for Tony Parker and Kyle Lowry. But I think that you really just probably – need to have Corey running that second unit. And Darren Collison will not be back for about a week. But you're seeing also how much pressure it puts on Victor Oladipo to push the tempo and to sort of initiate the offense without Darren Collison on the floor. And the turnovers, I, you know, I really did, you know, I said this by listening to the huddles, but I really felt like that there was just this this confidence, not an arrogance, but just a confidence that, oh, they'll get it figured out. We'll start the third quarter and, you know, we'll kind of regain control of this game. And those first four possessions were so troubling because I think it was just an attention to detail. And and I say this sometimes, and, and I said it a lot last year because it was an, a common theme where people got frustrated. They thought there was a perceived lack of effort. And, and I wouldn't argue with people, but it, I, I always thought that it wasn't as much as people people assumed. And, and I would use percentages and I would say, you know, I'm not one who necessarily likes to say 110% because mathematically I think that's impossible. But if 100% is the most effort that you can give in a game and you drop down to about 96% or 95%, that could be a big difference. And that is, it's the difference between being a step or two out on the perimeter and challenging a pass or maybe making a crisp pass to an opponent or to a not to an opponent, but to a, one of your teammates on the perimeter, and instead it gets deflected by an opponent. So I just think they were lax a little bit. They bought into some of the hype, maybe a little bit of the headlines. And, and I don't think all of the talk about these teams that are supposedly tanking, it probably worked against the Pacers because these guys are human. They read the same things. They see that there's a guy that's called up from the G League that was a Division II player that – really was not a part of the, the Hawks' plans, they think, oh, well, this is going to be easy. And you just you just can't do that. And so I, I think I will be fascinated to watch and see the team that takes the floor against Milwaukee. I have a good feeling that it'll be a different team. They'll have a different mindset. They'll be not 95 or 96%. They will be closer to 100%. But I really want to watch the turnovers because without Darren Collison, they have a few more guys that if they have the ball in their hands a little more than they're used to, they're maybe not as sharp and crisp with the ball. And if you look at the stats from the loss to Atlanta, you have some guys with way too many turnovers. I mean, let's just be honest. DeMontis Sabonis had five turnovers. Lance Stevenson had five turnovers. Boyan Bogdanovich, four turnovers. Victor had three. Corey Joseph had three. And you just can't have that and be successful on the road in the NBA. So I think turnovers will be the thing that I'll be watching most. 
I looked for Miles Turner to get involved a little bit more. I think it was disappointing that foul trouble affected his game and his playing time. And then in the fourth quarter, Nate just went with his gut and kept that same lineup out there. But if you lose to Dallas and then you lose to Atlanta a month later, you probably aren't freaking out, but you lose to them in back-to-back games and all of a sudden everyone is pushing the panic button. And I don't fault anyone for doing that because what I saw was very disappointing and it was troubling. But we'll see what happens this weekend. Yeah, I think all of those are good points. And as you were talking about effort there, I kind of had a thought. I would love to see some sort of graph that charted that would have charted how many times you or I said the word effort last year compared to this year. I mean, that was such like a regular storyline of last year's team. And again, maybe I do this too much, but I think it's human nature when you cover every single game and when you're around the team as much as you or I are to compare years past with this one. And I will say that while I I think you're probably spot on in terms of the effort in those last two games, I think that's been a problem um, so rarely this season. And I think it's been really refreshing that we haven't had to sit here and try to explain effort and why guys may not have been playing at a hundred percent throughout the season. Um, that really hasn't been an issue this year. And I think that's a positive within itself. And I think you made a good point there at the end too, which is if you lose these two games over a month's time in between, you probably don't think a whole lot of it. For example, Golden State has a loss to Sacramento. Houston has lost twice to Memphis. Boston lost to Orlando. Um, Toronto was taken down by Dallas. You look at every team in the NBA this year, and every good team has lost to one of those teams at the bottom that are quote-unquote tanking for those final spots. So you lose a game or two like this over the course of the season, and you don't really question it. It's just the fact that it's happened back-to-back here. I think it does you know, cause a little bit of concern and the positive for the Pacers have used as you've noted is they've got two games coming up here where look those last two were easily the two games that were the easiest to win and it's going to be very difficult with Milwaukee and with Washington but those are two teams right around you and if you you know could play basketball god if you will and say hey the Pacers are only going to win two games on this road trip who do you want them to be it would be the next two going to be very difficult to do the odds would say they can't do it and I think at this point you're okay to if you walk away salvaging a one and three road trip after this start that said there's still plenty of opportunity ahead of them and these next two games really are more important they're teams that they could be jockeying around near playoff time you know when we get to early mid-April they could be teams that that you're looking for tiebreakers on. If the Pacers beat the Bucks in any of the next two, they're very likely going to win the tiebreaker over Milwaukee because Milwaukee's division record is only 5-7 and seven and the Pacers is 8-6, and six and that's the tiebreaker there. So while, yes, the last two are disappointing, while, yes, I think they are cause for concern, and no, I don't discredit anybody who is concerned about this or those we've seen on Twitter, they still have, I would say, the majority of the opportunity remaining on this road trip. It'll be difficult. Um, it, you know, it's very hard to go in and win two road games against two teams that are around you in playoff positioning. But it's the task the Pacers still have in front of them. And I guess it's how quickly can they put the two games behind them. But at the same point, remember the lessons from them, the turnovers, maybe the not 100% effort, some of the lackadaisical play, some of the foul trouble. And uh, we'll see what they've got here going forward in the final two. And I think maybe the elephant in the room that needs to be evaluated or maybe even just observed over the next month would be Victor Oladipo and his shooting because 9 for 25 it was the uh, the tally against Atlanta and 1 for 9 from 3 and his 3-point shooting in February 
you know, it's not been as good as he started the season, and I'm not sure that anybody expected it to be that good, but he's fallen off quite a bit. And without Darren Collison, you kind of need Victor to be that outside threat, and you hope that he's not running out of gas and that maybe the All-Star break and the activities of All-Star weekend did not catch up to him. It's beneficial for the Pacers. There are only two more or two more sets of back-to-backs the remainder of this season, although one is coming up. So this weekend will be difficult with the game at Milwaukee then against the Wizards on Sunday, and then back home against Milwaukee on Monday. And then, you know, a road-heavy portion of the schedule to close. But I think the Pacers, you know, they need Victor Oladipo. It's not a breaking news story or article or tweet to say that Victor has to play well for this team to play well. And so I'm just curious your perspective. You know, you sit as close to anyone during home games of Victor and his shot and, and just what you think about Victor. Yeah, I, I at least will say this. I think he's shooting under 30% from three since the beginning of January. So that's a pretty good sample size. It's a couple of months, and it's not where you want it to be. And I also think everyone realized that when he was shooting 48% from three in the first month plus, that that where it wasn't where he was going to end either. And overall, I think his percentages on the season are okay. That said, I'll also give him credit because he's still been pretty effective in these last two months, despite the fact that he's lost the weapon that is the three-point shot. But going forward, you have to look at Victor's game, and I think, you know, that how big was that pull-up in transition three to his game in the first couple of months? And I think if the Pacers are going to get the seed that they want to get, I think if they're going to have the type of success in the playoffs that they want to have, um, I, I think some of that does hinge on Oladipo's shot. Look, he's a good enough player, he's quick enough, he gets by his man enough, you know, he gets to to his spots on the floor well that right block left block foul line type jump shot seems to be a regular shot that he can get and, and so I'm not if you told me he was going to shoot 30% from three the rest of the way I wouldn't hit the panic button but that said I do feel like he needs to have that up in the higher 30s and to have that be a bigger threat because if he's knocking that shot down I mean he's tough enough to stay in front of when you've got two or three you know, feet of distance between you. If you've got to stay on him and make him knock down the three, that's a whole different discussion for Oladipo. So I still think he's an all-star caliber player, and he's shown that over the last two months without his shot falling. But I certainly think it's a big key for the future. In fact, if we were to you know, name keys going down the stretch for Indiana with the obvious health being a given, I would say Victor Oladipo's shot is one of the biggest ones. And it's not that they can't win if he's not shooting well. They have won while he hasn't shot the three-point well. And he's good enough to do other things. And he's still been really effective. You look at the 35-point game he had against Boston. He has a steal in 44 straight games, which is remarkable. But I do think for him to hit the peak of his game, that shot has to be there. And you know he practices it. You know he works on it. He's the leader that's first in and last out of the gym very often. So um, I have confidence that he can get that back to where he wants it. Maybe not 48%, um, but maybe 38%. And if that happens, it opens up a whole lot more in an offense that's already having some success. Good points there by Pat on Victor Oladipo. And I guess the only other takeaway from that game is actually, Pat, something that did not actually happen during the game, at least on the floor, but instead on Fox Sports Indiana on the broadcast. And it's probably one of those things that you noticed secondhand because you're busy working on the radio call. You're kind of glancing up to the television monitors during the game, obviously, to watch it. But we had a graphic up that was comparing, not really comparing, but the point of the graphic that I'll just say is that we were highlighting the fact that Thaddeus Young was playing in his 800th regular season game And in this day and age with statistics, you can 
find a statistic and tailor it really however you want. But, you know, let's be honest. There were a bunch of qualifiers there on the screen with Thaddeus Young, but it was players who'd played 800 games and had a certain average in terms of points, rebounds, steals, block shots. I don't even have all of the numbers handy. And and I actually was the one that delivered it on the air only because I wanted to do a segment on Thaddeus playing 800 games. Our producer, Max Linewan, had this graphic ready, and we tied it together in terms of, you know, and we do this at times during the year on Fox Sports Indiana, when with basketball reference and the other statistical services, you're able to compare players. Usually it's pacer players, and you'd say a, a pacer player that has done this, this, and this, and had these averages. But anyways, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and Thaddeus Young were on the same graphic. I was a little surprised you know, we had a little fun with it, and I think Quinn probably had the best comment afterwards. I said it's a graphic or a statistic that Thaddeus should put in his resume, and Quinn said he should print the poster and put it in his hearse. <laughs> so we're obviously having a little bit of fun with it. By no right. means poking fun at Thaddeus, because let's just say it's not easy to play 800 games in the regular season in the NBA. So he's already accomplishing something. He's showing he's a well-balanced player, and that's pretty much all we are doing. I, to, to take a screen grab and to say, oh, I can't believe they would dare do such a thing and compare and say that Thaddeus Young is as good as Michael Jordan, come on. I mean, we're doing 82 games on TV. We're having a little bit of fun, but we're also propping up Thaddeus because he's a well-rounded player. He's played 800 games. He deserves a little bit of recognition. And I, was, I guess I was a little surprised, Pat, the reaction was so negative. I'm guessing the reaction is partially because I think fans maybe get a little tired of some of the qualifiers that you can throw out there and then compare people. And, and I guess I get that, but it seemed a little venomous to me, and maybe it was also tied into the fact that the Pacers were playing poorly. It was a, a perfect storm. Yeah, I don't think that that helped. Um, and, and just kind of watching it from a Twitter perspective, I think what, what you just said was dead on in the fact that, look, there's a ton of qualifiers here. And to say that Thaddeus Young is at the level of LeBron, Jordan, Bird, or Magic Johnson is both inaccurate, but B, not really the story you were trying to tell. And not not really, not at all the story that you were trying to tell. You were just trying to show his longevity. And, and yeah, you know, 13-5, 5.9, 1.4. I understand why it got some of the response it did. But I think just from a screen grab perspective, I mean, the whole point of watching the telecast is to get the context that went along with it. And and I think, you know, it's it's sports. You can have fun with stuff. You know, you can use a graphic like this and obviously use the context. We're not saying Young is with all of these guys. I know these numbers are all over the place. But look, the guys played 800 games, which is really impressive. Um, you know, there were a couple people on Twitter that responded. I didn't realize he's played 800 games already and all that. And no, is he, is he Johnson, Bird, Jordan, or James? No. Are these a lot of qualifiers? Yes. Are they random qualifiers? Yes. And is that maybe always the best way to display um, information? No. But I, I don't think everything has to be as if it's some sort of stock report on CNN money or as if it is some sort of, you know, political analysis of voting trends in Congress. It's basketball. You're supposed to have fun with it. Now, had you said, look at this, Thaddeus Young is as good as Johnson, Bird, Jordan, and James in these categories. And if Quinn and, uh, you know, Chris had, had echoed those statements that he was, you know, among the legends in this category, 
that's a different story. But of course you didn't, because of course you understand the context of it. So not surprisingly, on Twitter, graphics and, and single screenshots of this and, and stuff can blow up. And I know Max was having fun with it. I know he didn't actually think that Thad was as good as these guys. And Max is obviously very, very good at his job. So, um, you know, once it started to catch fire, I guess I wasn't totally surprised that it blew up in the way it did. And I know just on this screen, it, it can kind of look like, man, you're really reaching. But I really don't think, and I think you said, I really don't think the point of this was to compare these to these guys. And I don't know, maybe if you had um, a second shot at it, you do it again. Maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. That's uh, you do. You do what you guys do 250 plus live hours. It's more than that of, of TV broadcasts. And you know, you, it, you can't just do the same thing every time that would be formulaic and boring. So it's finding new ways to present information, to entertain the fan and to, you know, make the fan feel like they're more intelligent about the team they're watching. And um, yeah, I was, I was not totally surprised to see once it got going to see the kind of reach it got, but I really did like how Fox sports replied to it or followed up, I guess I should say with it, which was when they put a video of Thaddeus Young scoring a little bit later in the game. And the tweet was Thad pads, uh, his stats for the 13.5, 5.9, 1.4, 49, 30 club with this deal. I, I, I like that. <laughs> I like that, that reaction good. Yeah. to it. Yeah. And I think that's what the take that everyone should have. I guess I'd probably, if I had a regret, you know, as, and just, this is, we try to go behind the curtain just a little bit and explain how things happen. And usually that first in-game report that I have in the first quarter, there are two or three options and I'll present them to Max. And that's sort of planned out before the game. Many of the other times that I talk during the game, it's it's totally dependent upon the situation and the time. But I'll have two or three maybe that I'll think I'd like to talk about. People or stats. And Thaddeus was one of my top two that I had sort of picked that I wanted to highlight. And it was because I did talk with Thaddeus before the game. And I asked him, I said, did you realize this is your 800th regular season game? And he was not aware. So then I said, you know, I always think it's important or not necessarily important, but it's fun to say, do you remember your first game? And so we had a little bit of a conversation and that was the story that I wanted to tell in the game broadcast. Max had the graphic. I get it. I thought it was a stretch a little bit, but I also didn't think that people would take it so seriously. So I guess the only regret I have is maybe in the delivery of it. I kind of glossed over it a little bit. I had some fun in saying five guys on the screen, four of them, you pretty much know in the NBA by their first name basis. And then you've got Thaddeus Young. And hey, he's in this category. He's on this list. Props to Thad. And then I moved on and I told the story. And, you know, I I do I do think, and you just take a screen grab. And, and we've talked about this in the past. It goes back to Roy Hibbert in the playoffs talking with media members. And he said, you guys don't watch our games. You know what? Nobody that was commenting about it took a video clip of what we said and how we did it. All they did is they retweeted the screen grab. Nobody was watching Pacers-Hawks, and I'm not sure that last night around the NBA, that's probably the game that the average NBA fans should be watching. But that said, provide a little context. Watch the Pacers play every once in a while and know that we do every once in a while put a graphic like that up, and we're not saying he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame because he's in that category. But I think it was a little bit of an overreaction. Sorry if the Pacer fans, that's really the only people I care about. I'm not sure that I care um, about what the uh, awful announcing authors have to say or necessarily anyone else who is highly critical. But I do, if you're a Pacer fan and, and you don't like seeing things like that, you know, we can let Max know. We can scale it back a little bit, but we're still going to try to have fun. And we're still going to try to be creative. And we're going to take advantage of some of the statistics that are available now that maybe were not available 
for TV producers and game broadcasts 10 years ago. And so we'll continue to try to make things entertaining and just don't take everything so seriously. And it's just the nature of the business. And look, we picked careers that are in the spotlight. So none of this is complaining or any of that. But, you know, um, as somebody who's on the radio broadcast that runs simultaneous to the TV broadcast, there are sideline reports throughout the year that I bumble through and I wish I had done better. There are things that I say, you know, in, in the course of 82 games and six, seven, five, whatever preseason games and X amount of um, playoff games and Pacers weekly. I mean, you know, there, there are times where you say something, you stumble through something, you mess up. You don't always have, you know, that, that, perfect way of delivering something that you want to. And I'm not talking about your delivery at all here. I guess my point is just these 82 games, three and a half hour broadcasts, it's a ton of time on air. And you all are in your jobs because you're all very good at them. But, you know, it's I, I guess it's just a little funny to me how you won't hear a lot of stuff about the broadcast and then all of a sudden people find the one thing in the 260 hours of coverage that they don't like and then that's the thing that blows up. I know that's how Twitter works. I know that's how everything works. Um, But that said, I feel where you're coming from on this. And the one thing I just, I do want to reiterate and I do want to make sure and it's not like Thaddeus or his family are probably listening 30 minutes into our podcast. But I do want to make sure the point of it was not to slight Thaddeus in any way. And that's my only regret, I think, right now with the way that it's come across social media. If he sees it today and he says, oh, what are they trying to do? Or are they trying to make fun of me? That was the last thing that we wanted to do. We wanted to prop him up and say, you know, he's done something pretty cool. I don't think anybody would say we're trying to say he deserves to be the fifth best player of all time. I mean, is what it is, but he's played his 800th game. Let's prop him up for that. He's a well-rounded player. He's shown that he has longevity in this league, and he does a lot of things to help this team. And we talk about Thaddeus in positive ways almost on a nightly basis. And so I don't think that there's any way that he or anyone else could could think that we are in any, in any way making light of him. Um, so maybe it's something it is good for us to take a step back and, and understand, hey, some of these qualifiers can be probably taken a little bit too far. So good conversation for the podcast. Good conversation, I think, uh, on the bus after the game. I think uh, we were all checking Twitter and social media, and, and often Chris and Quinn and I have interactions on uh, Twitter after games where people want to ask us questions. And and not often is our producer, you know, as actively involved. But he said, hey, I'm getting killed on Twitter. And so, it, you know what? It happens. Uh, but let's just uh, move forward. Yeah, totally agree. So let's look at our pick three here as we start to round this out. And, you know, we wanted to go a little outside the box. There's only so much you can do of going and looking at the ESPNs, you know, on the standings of the NBA and and picking, um, you know, surprise teams, playoff teams, whatever. So we wanted to move things around a little bit. And let's look at either potential rule changes or rule changes that you'd like to see. And this discussion um, was begun a little bit actually at the high school level. And uh, it's a bit of an age-old debate about the shot clock. And I'm somebody who my first year out of school actually worked in North Dakota where there was a shot clock. And I kind of liked it there, but we were talking, you, me, Chris, amongst our group chat about the Westfield Carmel game. And Westfield um, spent a majority of the game playing four corners. And to their credit, it actually made the game pretty close at the end. But um, your thoughts, I guess, on the potential for a shot clock and, and what that means to high school. 
Yeah, I was a little bit mixed on it. I tend to be a little bit old school in terms of basketball and even my views on high school basketball in the state of Indiana. But I guess I could jump on board with this potential rule change. Um, I, you know, I think about right now how many games I watch from a third grade level over the course of the year, not just during the season, but in the summer. And I guess I just don't want to think about my particular, you know, the person I care about watching my son, if he's playing in his final sectionals in high school, which I still think is a tremendous big deal and something that, you know, I still have regrets that I didn't win a sectional. So I don't know that I want that final game or that situation to come down to a game where one team is stalling the entire game. So I could get behind the shot clock. I know the IHSA has um, pushed back against this potential change in recent years, but I could see it coming back and being brought up again. You have to have another, maybe another clock operator or someone that is able to uh, handle that part of the game. But I, I guess I could get behind this rule change. What, what would you say, Pat? 40? On a high school yeah, shot clock, see, I don't think it needs to be fast like the NBA. I don't either, and I don't think they want it to be. And I think if it ever were to be, you know, implicated, it would be uh, implemented. I mean, it would be something that just keeps stalling from happening. Like I, I think you want to let the kids run their sets and to have plenty of time. And I'll say this: it happened in North Dakota, which two points to this. And look, I totally get the other point behind it. And you know, if you're if you like the purity of the game, I totally get that. And the IHSAA does a great job. We've experienced it. I know you for quite some time with their tournament and their game. And I think it's it's at a fantastic level. It was at. 35 when I was in North Dakota and I will say I'm not sure I ever saw a shot clock violation it did not come into play other than to keep the stalling from happening it almost never happened a shot clock violation even at 35 and the other thing is yeah you have to have another clock operator and I know that's not the easiest thing in the world in some areas and um but but in North Dakota they can pull it off and some of those North Dakota schools have like 28 kids and so only 14 of them are boys and so there's not many people there anyway and they found a way to make it work so um i i think it's something that i would be okay with if they did decide to do it um but i understand the other side of it too look the whole you know we we wear the hickory uniforms in part you know based on a big upset from a smaller school who held the ball a little bit versus a bigger school so i i get all of it and uh i think i would be for it but I, I, I do understand both sides. It's sort of like the class argument. I, I'm okay with four classes. It's all I've ever known. I'm okay with not making, you know, I don't think some of the smaller schools should have to try to compete with 4,000 student schools, but I get what one class basketball meant. So, um, yeah, I think if, if you were to give me the choice, I would do it, but I understand both sides. Yeah, and I don't want it to be where three possessions a quarter in by someone throwing up a shot because the shot clock is winding down. So I think we can find a little bit of a sweet spot I don't think Westfield and Carmel, I don't know that necessarily Westfield needs to be holding the ball an entire quarter against a team of maybe not similar enrollment, but at least close enough to where they should try to compete in a, on a regular basis and try to score when you have the ball. So uh, that was how that was brought up. I think it's a topic that gets brought up a lot, but I wouldn't be surprised in the next five years if this rule changes. And I guess you have another basketball rule change with the shot clock in mind as well. One of the cool aspects of the WNBA is they get to test a lot of ideas that they have for the NBA and see how they work at the WNBA level. And my favorite rule implementation that they have had since I've been here um, for Pacers seasons is they have changed in the last two years to where uh, the shot clock in the WNBA is also 24, but if 
the team with the ball on offense shoots, it hits the rim, and they get an offensive rebound. The shot clock doesn't reset to 24. It resets to 14. I'm a huge fan of this. I would love the NBA to do this because part of the 24 seconds that you're allotted is to get the ball up the floor. So what it does, it speeds up the game because how often do you see an offensive rebound if the big that gets it does not immediately put it back up? It comes back out to the point guard. He spends four or five seconds. They re-get in their sets. It's kind of a, a lull in the action. It's a it's an even bigger problem, in my opinion, when you've got a team on offense that, let's say, is up four or five points in the last couple of minutes, and the defensive team gets a stop, but the offensive team gets a rebound. What do they do? They go into the corner, and they run 20 more seconds off, and they go again, and it's really not great basketball. So the NBA shot clock is low enough that you, you know, this is probably a bigger problem potentially in college than in the NBA, but I think this rule change has worked really well in the WNBA. It speeds up the pace of the game. It takes out some of the lulls, and you really don't need a full shot clock on an offensive rebound when you're already under the rim and in your um, offensive side of the ball. So I don't, you know, I don't know if the NBA has seriously looked at this. I've never heard Adam Silver discuss it specifically, but I know part of the reason for implementing a lot of rules in the WNBA is to see how they potentially could work in the NBA as well. And this has been something that I think has gone over extremely well in the WNBA. And I would hope one day the NBA would give it a serious look. I'm with you on that one. I see no negativity surrounding that potential rule change, so I'm all for it. If Adam Silver is listening, uh, you get the sideline guy's stamp of approval. (laughs) And our joint uh, pick, and you know, I think this one could go any number of directions, but it's been a little bit of a hot topic, and it's maybe the most recent topic in and around the NBA this week that I enjoy. I'm kind of tired of the tanking in the lottery discussion, and also partially because I think it gives a, a little bit of a false representation about some of these teams because I've seen now Dallas and Atlanta play really well and I, you can't tell me either one of those teams did not try to win those games. So I'm tired of those articles and stories, but I'm okay with this discussion about playoff reform. And I did not like some of the uh, ideas from Bill Simmons in the past, but I do think what came out last week courtesy of Zach Lowe about the NBA discussions about a play-in tournament I think I could get behind. So let's just reiterate I think you and I are both on the same page. We would like to keep it. We're actually on the same page as LeBron James. We want to keep it East and West and have an East champion and a West champion, correct? Yes, I agree with that. All right, so if you stay East and West, this is apparently what's been discussed. And once again, we have to credit Zach Lowe, who has reported this. February 22nd was the article, so this is not obviously a new article. But what he had said was that you're going to take the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th teams and have sort of a play-in tournament. And there's an incentive to be for each position. So you're going to have a game between the 7 versus the 8. The 7th seed gets that to be a home game. The winner of that game is automatically in the playoffs as the 7th seed in the postseason. Then the loser, then the actually the, uh, ten, the 9 and the 10 play each other. 9 is at home. The winner of that game plays the loser of the 7-8 game. So if you're 7 or 8, you have to lose twice to not make the playoffs. If you're 9 or 10, you'd have to win twice to make the playoffs without a loss. So I, I think it does create, then you've got a battle between you'd rather be 8 than 9, you'd rather be 7 than 8, 6 is the best because then you're automatically in. And honestly, if you're 11, maybe you're fighting to get to 10th. So I, I think this is a really promising idea. I'd like to see it implemented. I do think there's some concerns about lottery and ping pong balls. And if you make the tournament, 
how you do that moving forward. I think someone else can decide that and figure that out. And then the only other issue that I could see is that it would take a few extra days for this to happen, and then it pushes back the start of the actual playoffs, and you get into the whole thing about are you rusty. I think most of the time teams that are top six, I guess I should say, would be getting that extra rest. They'd be okay with the extra rest, but you do worry sometimes with a week off if there is rust. So that could be the unintended consequences sometimes you hear about, but that'd be a rule change I think I could get behind and I think I would enjoy and I like how the NBA, you know, playoff weekend, I like how it starts. The Pacers have been that first game before, and I think it's been fun to kick off the coverage. And I'm not sure I'd be for, you know, pushing it early into the week for game number one, but it's an interesting conversation. And I like how the NBA is is a very open-minded league. Adam Silver is somebody, you know, that's going to look at a lot of different things. And we talked about this with All-Star Weekend, and it was such a good All-Star Weekend except for, you know, maybe the anthem and the entertainment and all of that. And I think it's such a common sense league that they'll look at that and get it fixed. And I'm not sure the NBA necessarily has a playoff problem. I understand, you know, lately the top two, sometimes even three teams have been in one conference. And um, while that has not ebbed and flowed recently, I really do believe that does tend to ebb and flow. Um, so I, I guess I am somebody that's okay with it as is. The one thing, and this doesn't really affect the playoffs, the one thing I think that I still don't totally understand is the use of divisions and the use of maybe even more specifically. For example, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is right. If the Pacers and the Bucks were to tie, division record would determine who is the better seed. And I, I guess if divisions aren't going to have any impact on the seeding, then why even have them? I know some of it's for travel, but you know it's it's in the Eastern Conference. It's chartered jets. I'm not sure that's a, a major issue either. But um, I get the the play in thing. It would cause potentially some problems with the first day um, of you know the actual playoffs, if you will, and then um, how you do the ping pong balls. But I'm gonna have the hot take that I'm okay as is. That's okay. I think that's a perfectly acceptable response. And I think that you have to be careful not to go too far. And I think if they went with one of these, you know, put your 16 teams in and and rank your best records. And I saw some people projecting the playoffs, if that was the case, a couple of weeks ago. And I think at the time, Pacers and Wizards, oddly enough, were maybe eighth and ninth of the 16. So they'd play each other anyway. But you could potentially have had a top seed of Golden State playing a 16 seed of Miami. I am not in favor of doing that. And I do think you have to be a little bit careful. I did think the draft and the team LeBron and team Steph as someone who has appreciated the all-star game, I didn't think it was necessary. I thought you could have gotten a buy-in from the players to play hard and you could have still had East against West, but it worked out. So I guess you tip the cap to not just the Adam Silver, but to the players as well for making that better. But I don't want drastic changes. I do like this as a little bit of a change. And I also am in favor of some of the lottery reform. I don't know how the best way to do it is, but I do think that there needs to be less incentive to uh, having more ping pong balls or fewer wins. And, uh, you know, I still think the players on the court, they play pretty hard, but sometimes the front office can. help a team lose. I mean, look at the Suns last year and how they just basically didn't play any of their good players. Well, it didn't really benefit them. They ended up getting the fourth pick anyways. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole right now, but I do like that 7, 8, 9, 10 idea if it were to be implemented moving forward. 
All right, uh, so you are in Milwaukee right now. Pacers and Bucks kind of circle back to where we started here. Pacers and Bucks, and then Pacers and Wizards to close out the trip. We talked about keys, so uh, we don't need to go in depth there, but what are you looking forward to seeing, hopefully from Indiana when they take the floor in Milwaukee? I just want to see a good start because I think for so much of the season, uh, the first part of the season, this was a come-from-behind team and a team that maybe sometimes started slow but eventually made a big comeback. And I thought in January and February, I don't have all the numbers you know, offhand about their first quarter scoring and their halftime scoring, but I didn't feel like they fell behind as often. They were getting control of the game early, and I really want this team to come out and play well to start. I think that they're frustrated, they're aggravated. They did not have a practice on Thursday. That was already planned to be their sort of day off for the week. They'll have a shoot-around on Friday morning. And Milwaukee's a team that's also probably disappointed. They've lost three in a row, and they're closer to ninth than they are to fourth or fifth. So this is a game Milwaukee needs. It's not been an easy place for the Pacers to find success over the years. Unless they meet in the playoffs, it'll be the final game at the BMO Harris-Bradley Center. So uh, I don't think I'll cry about that either. <laughs> but I am looking forward just to seeing uh, the approach this team has and to see if they can improve on uh, really a couple of disappointing games to start the road trip. All right, out in Milwaukee, he's Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, any final thoughts here as we wrap up the Sideline Guys podcast? Nope, I would just say, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about social media in another context in terms of with the graphic from Fox Sports Indiana, but with the games themselves, uh, it, it can be difficult, I know, as a fan to watch a quarter or a play and and express frustration with the team. I um, mean, that's your right as a fan. It's okay. Uh, but these are long games, and this is a long season. So, you know, I, I tend to try to make Twitter a little bit more of a positive place than I think some do. So my advice to anyone is just compose the tweet. Think about it for a minute. What's the benefit of this? Just maybe hold back just a little bit. Now, if the Pacers lose by double digits both games this weekend and they're looking at eighth place, you know, I, I, I can understand the frustration. But maybe just... Uh, a little bit of patience. <laughs> well said. I think basketball, Twitter, they're supposed to be fun places. Sometimes it's interesting how uh, negative those two topics can get. Out in Milwaukee, he's Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. Plenty of opportunities to catch the Pacers here in March. It's the last full month of the regular season. Pacers.com slash tickets is how you can do so. For Jeremiah Johnson, I'm Pat Boylan. We'll talk to you next week on the Sideline Guys podcast.